Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus, vetgurus.com. Brendan here with Mark, episode 71, February the 22nd, 2018. Well, Mark, um, I don't know what you've been up to, but, but um, we've had a quite a bit of a stressful time lately. I didn't tell you about this no. <laughs> in our little preamble before we started recording. And our, um, I call that our extensive pr- preparation period, rehearsal. <laughs> research. Shit. It's called research, yes. Um what are we going to talk about today is what, what we um, what we usually say, don't we? Um, yeah, Annie's brother, Mark, he, and Brenda, his, his lovely wife there, um, little dog Jakey is sick. So Jake, the cavoodle, um, I got a phone call yesterday. Well, actually, yeah, we are recording this a bit early, aren't we? Well, we've given away the, the cats out of the bag. We're recording this a bit early this week because we're both busy this week. So it's been recorded on the, on a Sunday, which is very unusual for us, almost a week out. Um, so yesterday morning, um, I got a call about my mobile rang about 12.30, Mark, we're open till one at, at the clinic um, for consultations and I was working. And it went to the message bank because I was in a consult and then um, the nurse came in, Amanda came in and said, oh, we have a call from your sister-in-law and it was Brenda on the phone a little bit distressed and old Jake was very flat and she said oh Jake hasn't eaten for a day and um, he's just really lethargic and even when we got home from work he didn't jump up and run over to us and and they they're not particularly animal people but gee they love this dog they absolutely adore this dog and he's a great little thing he sits on the sits next to Mark when he watches telly and comes home and, and they just dote on him. I think he sleeps on the bottom of their bed. <laughs> <laughs> and um, Matthew, their son, loves him as well. So, yeah, they, they're really, really attached to him. It was about five or six. I, I um, bombed him out two or three weeks ago, did a dental on him. I was due for dental, did basic bloods and that, and everything nice and clear, so that was good. Um, so I said, I, I, I sounded a bit worried, so I thought, oh, well, I'll – um, I initially said, well, don't don't feed him, just starve him in case he's eaten something he hasn't, even though he hadn't vomited or had any diarrhoea. And I'll um, come over late in the afternoon. And then as I was driving back from the clinic home, I thought, no, I'll just head over now. So I headed straight from work and had a look at him. And I said, oh, I'll just take him out into the backyard because he looked a tad pale. <laughs> so I um, checked his gums and they were very muddy and, and pale and um, it was very, very flat mark and a pretty bit of tachycardia, pretty fast heart rate going on there, a um, little bit of abdominal discomfort, but it was just really out of it. And I said, well, I think you should take him down to the emergency centre. We can play around with him at, back at the clinic, which would be about half an hour drive from them and can mess around with bloods and rads and things, but I think he needs to you know, some more intensive care. So they took him down to the um, very good emergency centre that I often refer my ultrasounds for the exotics to, actually. And um, 
he I got a call back from them probably half an hour later. His PCV was fifteen oh. um, or sixteen, and um, they'd been running bloods and then did a bit of an abdo ultrasound and played around a little bit, and they're pretty certain he's got immune mediated hemolytic anemia. The poor little boy. So. Um, Overnight, I just contacted them this morning and he ended up having to have a blood transfusion. I think his um, PCV dropped again overnight and they've started him on the cortisone, etc. But, yeah, fingers crossed, but they're they're pretty distressed, unfortunately. So it's, um, yeah, so we've all got our crossing all our little fingers and hope little Jakey will start to kick in and um, respond to the treatment. And I can't really, you probably see a fair few of them there, Mark, but I, it's been a while since I saw it immune-mediated hemolytic anemia in a dog. Um, I've seen a fair few over the years, but, um, yeah, have you seen any recently? No, funnily enough, not not a lot recently, but they, they, they are one of those things that, I don't know, probably a couple of dozen over the course of a um, dull and boring career, um, and... Um, and they do always, they, you know, they present seriously and they take a little bit of time to wrap your head around and then finally once you've got the diagnosis, they, um, they, uh, they're, you know, life-threateningly ill and, and you've got to work hard with them. But um, it does seem that, uh, you know, a majority of them will respond to PRED and immunosuppressive therapy, though it's a serious, serious recovery. So, yes, I'm just hoping that... Um things kick in soon and he gets over that initial critical period where if they're going to lose him it will be fairly soon i think well shout and out we get, to jake we've all got our fingers crossed. yeah so good on you jake hang in there mate um and um yeah so that's sort of what i've been um concerned about over this weekend what about yourself i, I hear that you've uh, been a tad more relaxed and you've been for a bushwalk <laughs> i have been well i've been i was just going to comment today on uh, you know you know i like to get out in the bush and do my bird watching and um and we have the we've it's been pretty dry most of the wetland areas up here are uh, are getting a bit of um uh you know crusty mud instead of the usual four or five inches of water and um I did have seen over the last uh, month or so uh, an increasing number. Well, um, rakily, the um, the native Australian water rat. I can't tell you that I've seen a lot of them before, but they keep popping up in my presence. And yesterday, I was lucky enough to um, get a few photos of one and uh, and spend some time watching them roll around in the the last remnant pool at one of at Pambalong, one of our local wetland areas. Ah. So. Yeah, that's been a little bit of a highlight for me. Bit of bit of a water rats. I used to see an odd one in the Yarra, actually. Yeah, they they're remarkably yeah. adaptable to urban life, Brendan. So I'm not surprised that um, not many things would live in the Yarra. My bet. Although you've had a dolphin in there, haven't you? It has, yeah. It has, and it, and they are cleaning it up. They are cleaning it up. And I must admit, they have those little boom pollution sort of collection barriers um, and I noticed them last week when we were in the city um, and the, for those who don't know the Yarra River is the main river that runs to for, to Melbourne's and through Melbourne city here in Australia um, and and sort of meanders its way from up our way um, down, down to the city and um, yeah traditionally it's been 
Well, lots of jokes, but of lots of jokes, isn't it, Mark? Um, the Yarra being the river that runs upside down because it used to be very muddy up the top and looked pretty horrible. And um, they'd say never try and jump in the Yarra because you'll get sick. Um, but they've spent a lot of time and money cleaning it up, and and certainly they 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 still routinely survey platypus, Mark, um, in in the Yarra, and they have found platypus in the CBD sort of region as well. So yeah. Um, so they've done a lot to clean it up. Having said that, I wouldn't be drinking too much of the water if I did happen to fall in or jump in if I was in the city there. So it is getting better. And it's it's it's, it's a, um, you know, I swam in the Yarra a lot up out our way up here towards the Yarra Valley region. Um, yeah, so, and I've seen the water at some, they probably enjoy it in the city area with all the, some of the gunge and, and the, um um, things that they can um, get stuck into there, yeah. So that's our little um, that's our little um, our little um, nature trip for today, Mark. I know, I know. I'm gonna. Uh, I want to talk. I just um, something popped into my mind. It's a, a, um, about one of our sponsors, Microchips Australia, Mark. The um, I don't know whether you've sold any to your clients that dual scan microchip cat door um, that they have, and I've always been fascinated with these little. Um, um, additions to you know just obviously we want to microchip all our, our pets and if I had cats I'd be probably having one of these little microchip cat cat doors where you can do that um, scanning technique they have the dual scan one where, where you can um, have one cat that won't be able to um, get in and you can say oh stay outside in the cat cage and the, and the other one um, with its microchip um can um, be led inside, so it's a pretty nifty little device. I'm, I'm thinking very seriously, Mark, that I need to microchip my two daughters, and then if Jane's had a very big night and she's got her high heel shoes on and she's coming back, you know, two or three in the morning and um, trying to get into the house, that I can rig up something similar to this microchip cat door that um, she pops a key into our front door and it just beeps out and says, no, you're not coming in <laughs> after a certain time. And that she says, bad luck, you can sleep in the car. What do you think? Good idea? Well, I, I, I think there's some other products that um, the wonderful Microchips Australia company make. The um, I know uh, Doug's been using the tracker that they uh, uh, that they have, a device that um, – is not a RFID, but um, does speak to the satellites, and um, and so it can be concealed in um, a vehicle, um, and it sends signals about that location. It's ideal um, for you know um, expensive bikes, uh, for camera gear, that sort of stuff. You can slip this into an innocuous position. If someone knocks them off, you can find them again. But obviously, their main use is in the car. I think you should use that then. Ah, that's right. Yes, yeah, so I've just found that the live track stealth, yeah. um, which is designed to yeah, it's a um, GPS tracker. You can f- and you use a free iCar phone app, and it can track your boat, motorbike. I'm just reading off the website. Houseboat, jet ski, heavy machinery. In fact, anything with a battery can be tracked. So it must need a battery to run it. So, hmm. So far, um, yeah. Um, my mind's turning now, Mark. It's, um, yeah. But I do like the idea of the – we've got um, a little Ruby, uh, a Cavoodle Cross that we're minding at the moment, and our cats, and uh, Ruby 
makes poor Kate's life miserable by um, just uh, scratching on the door each time she wants to go out. And um, if she doesn't get let out promptly, she does seem to wait until the urge to urinate is just so intense that she can't wait more than about three minutes. Um, and so poor Kate has to get up whenever that door scratched. And if we had one of those, I think we're going to install one of Doug's wonderful gate devices so we can uh, allow Ruby's microchip to pass and uh, um, and contribute to uh, less time cleaning up and less time having to get to the door, Brendan. Yes, I think that's a good idea. And the more I think about it is I, I think I prefer not to know where Jane <laughs> is. So I don't think I'll, um, I don't think I'll, I'll sneakily place one in her car. No, so. <laughs> yes, no, it's not worth it. It's to, it's a, sometimes it's good being ignorant, Mark, I think. Yes. Okay, so you've got the first news story, Mark, haven't you? What is that? First news story is going to be the crows. Um, And uh, we have talked a number of times about uh, a number of the social media stories about the smartness of corvids um, and, uh, and, you know, the, the, the archetypal story is about uh, a New Caledonian crow, Betty, who in 2002 uh, uh, fashioned a hook from a piece of wire and used it to pull um, a reward, a small piece of meat from a container that could not be gotten out of any other way. And scientists, since Betty's inventiveness, um, they've been, you know, pretty absorbed in... Um, in the intelligence of crows, and um, and obviously because we're often looking at the ways that animals think and comparing it to our sort of thought processes, it's interesting, particularly in terms of intelligence, um, to find an animal that um, that uses tools and um, and does uh, like quite complex things. But one of the aspects of this particular story that struck me, um, and it struck me because we've, our local area, there's been an increasing number of uh, crows move into the area. So they've been uh, um, really drawing my attention to their behaviour, their complex behaviour. So these uh, many researchers are now looking at the longer and longer sequences of behaviour that that, um, that these birds are able to put together um, and so there's there's um, there's two probably sort main sorts of planning that uh, intelligent animals are able to do there's online planning which involves um, developing a plan on a moment-to-moment basis that you know you're in a situation something happens you've got to plan how to cope with that and then adjust and assess the effects and uh, develop the next step Pre-planning is probably a more true representation of the forethought that's required, the intelligence that's required to justify planning, where a series of sequence of steps, uh, you know, like a a chess game, um, leads you to a particular outcome. Um, And um, some very clever researchers at the moment um, have uh, shown through some, you know, there's increasingly... Um, sophisticated and uh, um, uh, clever tests that uh, researchers are applying to corvids. And um, they've pretty clearly shown that 
uh, the results of experiments have shown that these new Caledonian crows can pre-plan three behaviours into the future. That is, they can perform three separate activities with a vision to one single outcome at the end. Um, and, geez, that's... Um, I think there's most days that I can't rack up three separate events in a row to planning for a single outcome. So that's a pretty outstanding um, measure of intelligence, I reckon. Um, so the whole the old phrase about being bird-brained is incorrect. Is that what you're saying? You've been saving that up the whole time, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> no, I just thought of that then. I, I literally just thought no, of it is, what you say is true. Uh, there's, uh, and it's been my, my um, I don't know, uh, uh, you know, when as veterinarians, we often get into discussions about the relative intelligence of various animals that our clients might own. And my sort of stock response to that is that I'm not big into judging their intelligence because their central nervous system is applied to a, you know, a particular circumstance. And by their measure, um, they're smart and we're not. It's that uh, there's a wonderful cartoon which shows um, the the uh, monkeys testing all the animals in the the jungle's IQ and and their test is how high you can climb up a coconut tree and you know pull a coconut off and so all the animals in the jungle are not very good at it but the monkeys are great um, and I think there's an element of you know us assessing other animals um, intelligence and making judgments about them that uh, that you know. Uh, is influenced by the tests we apply. But there's no doubt that birds are one of the types of animals who transpose their intelligence to our tests and play us at our game and do actually pretty good. So I think you're right. Bird brain is not an insult at all. That um, And that article, which we have a link on our website, um, it's got a great little video of, of that um, one of those crows performing that... Um, task and um yeah it's definitely worth watching um it's quite um amazing what they're doing that little bird brain um crow there mark my first story mark is um is um a bit of a, a bit of a quick one and, and it's that a dog food made from insects you like this one mark is to go on sale in the uk for the first time and globally Pets consume 20% of meat and fish. A figure insect food could help us reduce. So um, there's a startup company called Yora, which has provided 40% um, of the protein in this new product, which is from, what was it from? It was from a particular type of insect. I'm trying to remember where it was from, reading through the article it's there. Um, there we go. Um, black soldier yeah, flies, yeah, um, which they source from a company, an insect company, Protix in the Netherlands, um, which they, they're very efficient, these black sol soldier flies, at turning vegetation that would otherwise be wasted which is another good um, thing about this product, into body mass quickly and sustainably. So they grind up these um, black soldier flies to make this um, pet food, and it's on the market now in the UK. And, and I've jumped over to the Europe website, and uh, you can order it online and you can have it um, delivered every two to four weeks or so you can um, have a have a regular d delivery with it yeah so they've um they've used they've they're dried up and ground with oats potato and 
natural botanicals, Mark. Um, and the current version comes in the form of dried pellets, although they say they are hoping to launch a wet version of it in the future. And um, interestingly, they trialled 29 different recipes to find the combination of great tasting ingredients for the dogs. Um, so, yeah, so I think it's a good idea. So a, a dog food made from insects, the only the only concern I potentially have, and I had a bit of a flick through their website, is the concern recently with, with um, although it's um, very few of them, but with the outbreaks of some of the problems with some of the commercial dog foods, even the, the bigger brands have had some issues with um um, um, ingredients that have been causing disease um, recently, isn't that, Mark? And and been withdrawn withdrawn from the market. So I, I just just want to be a little bit cautious about um, you know um, the the ingredients in this, the rest of the ingredients, and and whether it's a complete and nutritionally balanced um, product. But apart from that, I think it's a great idea. And and I agree entirely, Brendan. I think that. Um, it's the way of the future. I think um, lots of people get upset uh, by um, the stories of the sources of, um, of the, you know, um, some of the things that might go into our nutrition. But I don't think we can be precious about this. And I think the, uh, um, you know, the the that twenty percent uh, of all of the the uh, meat in the world, though meat and fish, uh, goes to feed pets. Um, uh, you know that's a that's an awful big resource and has an impact on um, carbon dioxide production and a whole range of things. And I think, uh, um, like with the provisos that you have mentioned, um, once those are ironed out, I think uh, I think this will be the way of the future. So I'm glad to hear about it as well. Good. Now you've got a, a slightly. Slightly more serious topic here. Um, you might get quite emotional with this. Indeed, moment. I might. Do you think that there's a pattern? You know, if we went over these stories over the past 70-odd podcasts we've done, do you think that one of us would be doing more more um, hilarious ones and one of us might be doing more emotional ones? I don't know. And who's doing yeah, exactly. which would be my, my, my question. Well, maybe we should get an email from some of our listeners because we um, haven't had much of a run of emails lately. Um, we get a few comments um, on social media, et cetera. And, um, but, yeah, send us an email. And, uh, and rate us. Do we get many maybe, ratings? Yeah. No, nah, not really. I think people are pretty, um, pretty um, shy about um saying we're a load of crap um so people need to to say look look um stop doing stupid stories on on bird brains and let's have some more stories on reptiles well this one this, this, this is a serious story you're quite right and i did get um uh quite worked up about it when i read it and i'm still yearning to uh it's one of those things, and so let me tell the story and then I'll tell my concerns. The, in Australian First, the ACT may legally recognise animals' feelings. And so this is uh, a story from written by Bronwyn Orr. It's in, it's, uh, in the ABC, on the ABC's um, uh, uh, online web uh, news service. And, and 
And for our overseas listeners, ACT is the Australian Capital Territory, so it's it's one of the regions in Australia. And um, it'll be it, it'll there's many things about the ACT, but this that set it apart from the rest of Australia, um, and this will be one because it will be the first time in any Australian jurisdiction where uh, legislation would enshrine uh, sentience in animal welfare law. Um, which is uh, which in, is a good thing, but it involves several levels, Brendan. It involves several, like you know, looking at things from different angles, um, and one of them is the consideration of anthropomorphism. And we've touched on this in a number of discussions before. Um, anthropomorphism uh, being the attribution of human emotions to animals. Um, it's generally frowned upon in scientific circles, and it is really desperately, um, you know, um, uh, discouraged from much scientific literature. Um, and I think we, there's some uh, historical weight to this that um, thinkers during the Renaissance spread the idea that um, that animals were mere uh, reflex machines that they did not have the rare human capability to feel emotions or perceive uh, um, uh, many of the sensations that uh, humans felt. Um, and so when animals were uh, injured and cried out, um, Renaissance thinkers deduced that this was an automatic response similar to a reflex rather than evidence of of conscious perception and feelings, um, and it's only been more recently that uh, that gradually um, there's been an understanding that um, that animals were actually capable of um, of suffering, um, and and to do that they have to have sentience, they have to have the ability to feel and um, and perceive uh, sensations and emotions. So I think you, most people who listen to us would realise that uh, we, well, I wouldn't want to speak for you, but I am a subscriber to what I think of as the common sense application of anthropomorphism, that uh, there are certain times when I am perfectly happy to say that all the evidence suggests that Ruby, our cavoodle uh, we're minding, um, is happy. And there's other times when she's sad and um and these are difficult things to quantify, but research is showing more and more um, that you can recognise activity in the parts of the brain that uh, equate to those emotions in humans. And there's a lot of evidence now that um, that those sensations uh, go pretty much all the way through all the vertebrate species um, and extend down to... Um, you know, some invertebrates, octopuses, uh, most of the cephalopods. Um, and at this stage, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even rule out um, that uh, even more simple, uh, simply organised species uh, end up having some degree of um, perception of uh, maybe not as sophisticated as uh, many of the vertebrates. But, um, but I, I, sentience is something that I think may well end up being much more widespread than we initially thought. What this means, Brendan, in terms of legislation, uh, I don't know that I can clearly predict, um, but I would hope, but it's my dear hope, 
um, that uh, it makes us more sensitive to the things that the animals are going through. If we have the recognition of sentience in welfare legislation, then hopefully that will lead to um, you know more uh, responsible, more virtuous, uh, more caring treatment of the animals that uh, that we have responsibility for. Yes, I, it will be interesting to see, one, whether it goes through, because reading through that article, I think the proposal will be somewhere later this year. It will go through Parliament and discussed and whether it then gets gets into law. But um, And then what, if anything, that um, effect, and that has... Um, as a follow-on from that that recognition, and by the look of it, Mark has said that there is there are other countries that already have have um, applied that definition. I think there are some um, European countries. Like Canada has had um, similar uh, definitions in their welfare legislation, and I think it's only in the last six months or so that New Zealand's included it as well. So. It's not a world first, but certainly an Australian first. Um, and I still, well, I suppose we can ask some of our listeners in those countries to give us their perception of uh, what, if any, um, the uh, acceptance of sentience in animals, um, the acceptance that they can feel things, whether that has made a change to animal welfare legislation. Yes. And... It'll be a boon for the uh, veterinary behaviourists, won't it? Well, just quietly. How is um, being a bit cynical, but, um, cynical. Uh, but <laughs> tell me, that we're struggling um, to get sufficient um, uh, veterinary behaviourists. Uh, and I must admit, we have a, an increasing number of um, pets that we do um, want to refer on for for behaviour consultations, and um, um, I think it's. Not that we haven't been seeing them, it's just that we um, haven't recognised that they do need some um, behavioural behavioural care and, and potentially some of the behavioural medications and um, some we've had some spectacular results as far as improvement with the um, apparent quality of life with these animals when they're when they're not just on the medications but but on behavioural modification therapy. Um, it's probably a topic for a future podcast, but my gut feeling is that um, is that it's very wearing to do that behavioural stuff um, uh, can sometimes be exhausting um, to, uh, and it probably takes like emergency medicine it probably takes a very particular personality type to, um, to be able to do it um, consistently and for a long period of time so but well, we might talk about that another time Brendan. Yes. yes that can be another Another topic. There we go. Add it to the list. Well, my last news story, Mark, is maybe it slightly follows on from the one you just you just had, and that is Indonesian police admit using a snake to terrorise a Papuan man. And the reports from Jakarta, Indonesia police have acknowledged officers terrorised terrorised a Papuan man with a live snake after a video of the incident circulated online showing the man screaming in fear and his interrogator laughing and human rights lawyers have jumped in on it and they said the interrogation methods were torture and violated police policies as well as several laws. 
and police indicated the incident with the alleged thief happened recently during a crackdown on petty crimes. So it was just, it was this guy who was, um, I think, stealing mobile phones. And um, during the video, you can hear them um, talking about um, repeatedly asking him, um, "Have you, um, you know, what have you done with the, um, what have you done with the stolen cell phones?" Um, and it's a one minute twenty second video showing um, the snake, at least two meters long. And I think I haven't actually seen the video. I've seen the pictures, Mark, wrapped around the uh, um, the handcuffed suspect's neck and waist, and the officer pushing the head of the snake into the man's face as he becomes increasingly hysterical. And the police chief Tony, Tony or Tony said in a statement the officer had been disciplined by being given ethics training and moved to other locations. I think it's been put on the waterboard in um, um, police now, Mark. Um, so, yeah, that was a, quite a um, quite an interesting one, I thought. Um, so, um, yeah, I'm trying to tear it. I think it was a um, boa constrictor by the look of it, some sort of boa. I don't yeah, know if you looked at the video, a, um, Mark. Uh, one of the, the – so it's in, it's in uh, – Western Papua, and it's probably a, a water python, I would be guessing. Ah, okay. Um, the they've got a, in the article. I've got they've got a couple of pictures. I don't know whether they're from that particular police interview. Anyway, maybe the video isn't is is different. They've just got some stock photos here. Um, yeah. So the poor guy. Um, yeah, and uh, a little petty criminal where they've. Um, They've been draping this snake around him, and he's screaming I think hysterically. The interesting so, thing, yes. Yeah, well, that's what the about interesting the poor snake? thing. This story is that it, what about the poor snake? That um, that uh, such a situation would not be good for its welfare. Um, and I, I try to be that sort of person that understands that around the world there are different uh, cultural norms, and that it's not necessarily appropriate for us as um, privileged Westerners. Uh, to impose those uh, um, our set of ethics uh, unvaryingly around the world, uh, but I think anyone in their right mind is going to see this as uh, something that's not. Uh, you know, there are some absolute rights and wrongs, and handcuffing someone uh, who has a fear of snakes and draping a six-foot python around their neck um, and pushing it into their face. Yeah, that pretty clearly falls into the wrong category. Um, the other thing uh, is that this is this carries a lot more uh, political weight because of the complex nature of West Papua, that um, it's an Indonesian territory that really does see itself as... Um, uh, as a separate part of the world, not can, you know, the complex nature of the large archipelago that is Indonesia, um, which is, you know, culturally, culturally diverse, uh, the uh, West Papuan people uh, sort of feel very separate from that. But they're fortunate in having a huge amount of natural resources. And so um, Indonesia really has a lock on that part of the world and is not much interested in any sort of insurgency or independence movement. Um, and so uh, an Indonesian police officer treating a native Papuan in this manner has more serious and complex political overtones, Brendan. <laughs> I was trying to say that without like, getting banned in Indonesia. 
Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, it may be somewhere. I, well, actually, it, it is somewhere I was going to speak <laughs> um, at some stage. So, you. <laughs> um, you've just ended that, Mark. Yes. <laughs> I was planning to do a bit of a, um, a, a working holiday um, in Jakarta. Um, that, that's true. <laughs> I'll tell you about that off air, Mark. Thank you very much. Now, let's jump on to our main topic, and it's one that you um, – device and it's a great one and it is let's call it um remembering our pets um it's about memorials for our pets that die is that is that what you you wanted (laughs) now i feel all responsible yes i thought that um we've several times over the last um 70 weeks we've um touched on uh the very special and privileged position that we have in uh, euthanasia, and we've talked about uh, the dynamics of euthanasia and particularly how uh, those dynamics and logistics might be different for many of our exotic pets. And uh, there's a good uh, amount of um, uh, very useful resources uh, now available about um, what is the most humane way to go about that process. But I thought it might be an opportunity for us to touch on what happens afterwards, Brendan. Um, and uh, and so I think that uh, particularly, you know, many of the things that, we're, that we will be about to talk about, are, uh, you know, they, they apply equally whether we're talking about exotic pets or uh, more traditional pets. Um, but I do find my experience is that I probably am... Uh, I'm very often, there's several factors which mean that I end up dealing with it more frequently with um, my exotic pets. And the first one is that is that whole thing about exotic pet medicine that um that we often end up seeing them at a a more critical juncture in their illness where there may be uh, they're more likely to not necessarily survive. So um and many of the species that we get to deal with have a much shorter uh, lifespan than our dogs and cats. And so we've got uh, wonderful clients who have rats who we're dealing with um, these types of issues, you know, once every 18 months or two years. And they love their rats so much that they get another one and then we get to see them again. So I do feel that um, there are some special characteristics of... Um, of uh, memorials of of uh, uh, what we do after an animal's passed away that might be applicable for our exotic and uh, avian pets. Absolutely. And I think the important point there, Mark, is that we shouldn't be prejudging those clients regardless of what pet it is. Um, and, and when we're talking about the exotics, it even includes... A mouse, for instance, or or or, or, a, or a little rat, and some of these animals that that, that vets who and um, nurses, technicians who are dealing with infrequently may think that gee, it is only, and you should never say that anyway. It's only a mouse, or it's only a rat, or it's only a guinea pig, and there's no point offering the options of. Um, what we're going to talk about shortly um, after the animal has died um, to the client because, yeah, it's only a rat or it's only a mouse. Um, and, um, yeah, I agree totally in that um, 
if anything, it's the opposite. The, the, um, compared to dogs and cats, the, the owners of these unusual pets are even more attached um, um, to these short-lived species than, than um, you'd ever think of um, compared with compared with some of the other species. So there's lots of different options, and I think that's what you wanted to chat about, all the different options and, and things that people have done um, with their pets after they've died and, and how to deal with that process with them. And it's all part of well, that healing you've, process. You've exactly isn't it, led me in the right direction. I was going to first of all talk about um, language. I think that um, I think just a little bit of forethought um, about the words that we use make a huge difference in these situations of loss. And so I just wanted to... Um, uh, I know that many years ago, one of uh, the staff that we had would often talk about the disposal of the uh, the remains of um, of uh, a pet, um, and I think that's a classic example of a word that has an implication that um, that we don't want to pass on. And there's lots of um, uh, I think I often say to the staff that these events, the euthanasia and memorial. Uh, what we're going to do with the the um the remains afterwards they're they're moments of truth brendan they're they're amongst the most emotional times in people's lives um they have committed a a huge part of their life to this relationship with the animal um and um and the decision to not go any further or to have them die uh uh, is a hugely emotional event and and there are very many moments of truth and using the appropriate language at the time I think is a, a sensible thing to do. I do always, one of the things that um, I think I always try and make sure we do is talk to people very early about um, uh, post-mortems and necropsies. Um, I often find um, that in the very emotional state in the immediate time uh, after an animal's passed away, people are uh, not in a space to make a decision about that stuff very well. But I know, um, and I literally will say this to people, I know that um, after reflection and several weeks down the track, many people regret not having uh, a deeper understanding of why those events happened. And often, like uh, returning to my um, uh, ratty friends, um, they they often have more than one of those animals. And so having a great handle on what's happened to uh, lead to um, the death of an animal uh, is a very, very uh, important emotional tool, I think, uh, not just an important clinical tool. Yeah. Yes, and we did cover a re we did cover the um, process up to the euthanasia and the euthanasia process in one of our previous podcasts, which was number thirty six, euthanasia of unusual pets, where we talk about trying to help the client through the actual euthanasia process and and um, you know the formalities of completing the the consent forms etc and, and the payments and all that sort of stuff so we won't um, and it's extremely important all that information but uh, we refer our listeners to episode 36 for most of that and, and I think mark if we will concentrate on dealing with the, the disposal <laughs> as you as you don't put it um, of, of the pet and um, how we look after um, the animal um, after after we um, it's passed away 
and um, what options we give the clients and uh, are there any tips and tricks, I suppose, that's probably poor, poor, poor way of saying it, um, of how to deal with, deal with it. And um, um, some of the um, some of the quite quirky methods of, of, of remembering the pets as well, Mark, that, that some people really, really, um, I was going to say enjoy, but really um, appreciate um, for, for dealing well, you, with the, the body the key message we try, I suppose, the, you know, cutting to the chase, there's three broad groups of things that uh, people can can do with, um, uh, with the um, remains of their pet. Um, the first one is sort of a traditional burial in their yard. This has been a, a topic that's been on the, uh, in the news lately, um, and particularly uh, one of the prominent uh, television news readers has uh, made a bit of a, a online discussion about this, and I'll talk about that in a minute. The second one is um, cremation, and most of us in veterinary hospitals will have a, a, a service, a cremation service that we can use, and it, it actually has been our, uh, the, the wonderful people that we use, um, have really built up the the part of the the market where they um, are looking at um, birds and and small mammals um, and uh, where initially they were a little bit um, I suppose it's out of the ordinary and they they didn't know what to do they're now um, very very helpful for us and very helpful for the the uh, the the clients who are searching for that sort of um, uh, result afterwards um, and then there's a group of um, uh, um then I think it is always uh, you know obviously we can uh, organize our sort of standard disposal for biological waste through the the normal uh, process of waste disposal but not it's surprising how few people take that up and then the third category is um, uh, just I call it the random ones there's a bunch of um, like you said Brendan quirky and maybe a little bit offbeat um, things that people are happy to do with uh, the um, the remains of their happy's the wrong word that are that are you know that are a suitable memorial for them and as you said before there's I, t- I try not to, there's no judgment involved here there's no right or wrong what uh, what people uh, find appropriate is uh, is really up to them, and there's a bunch of um, non, I suppose, uh, memorials that don't involve the the uh, the direct um, management of the remains. Um, things like uh, footprints or clips of hair or feathers, or um, and I thought it would be an appropriate thing for us to mention the, um, you know, we've done a number of times uh, submitted um, uh, uh, a. Uh, uh, um, a donation to the Australian Companion Animal Health Foundation, the AVA runner, a research foundation, um, which can be, which to which a donation can be made, and that donation goes towards um, veterinary research. And we found that in a couple of instances, that's been um, one of the most powerful memorials that we could do for. Uh, for people that might not be able to see another way to celebrate the life of their animal. Yes, and I think within that AVA Memorial Fund, they also have the option of you could state, um, and it's kept in the name of that particular pet, I think it's kept in the register and published, and you could, for instance, uh, donate and say, oh, I want... 
the monies that I've donated to go towards horse research, if, if it was a pet horse, for instance, or, or dog or a fish or whatever, so you can direct it to the particular species or, or region of, of medicine that is of interest for the client. So I think it's a good idea. And, I, and there may be several others like that, but that's certainly the one that we know of, isn't it, Mark? Um, so, so do you want to talk about the the, 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 the cremation options um, well, that you offer? quickly before I do, I know you're trying to make me be very focused and quick, Brendan. I was just going to quickly speak to the the um, burial in the yard. Uh, burial. Uh, uh, well, it's been a bit of a controversy yes. up here because our local uh, broadcaster, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, the ABC, they've uh, had a bit of an ongoing discussion about um, what happens to animals after they've passed away, and it, and uh, and certainly uh, our our local uh, we we cover several local government areas, and they each have slightly different rules about what can happen to animal remains afterwards, and some of them actually have uh, limits. Uh, they discourage people from home burial um, fortunately they tend to turn a blind eye if it's uh you know they're, they're mainly only interested in, in you know contamination of water tables or um, large numbers of animals being buried they turn a blind eye to most domestic situations but the the um regulation is still there for some of our uh, local government areas but most of them are happy for people to have a a uh, uh, home burial of their pet. I think it's important that a little bit of preparation goes into that, and uh, um, and if a hospital can have a number of suitably sized, um, uh, uh, for want of a better description, I suppose they're coffins, boxes that uh, various animals can go in. And I find that um, if you have a little bit of preparation and the animals look comfortable in those boxes that makes a huge difference i know the animals passed away uh, but we've certainly had uh, people upset that their bird's tail has had to be curved around or um, something like that so just a little bit of forethought into the containers that might be useful for people to take their animal home afterwards and and then gently inter them i do also uh, just a legal aspect to this that um that uh it is very important to make sure that people are aware that uh, that the euthanasia solution, pentobarbitone, um, is used in almost all our uh, euthanasias, and uh, so the body will contain that. And some, some, uh, while many of the small animals that we uh, have to deal with will only have very small amounts, and that's broken down over a month or two, um, there is the potential for um, a rabbit-sized animal to be dug up by a, um, a particularly um, inappropriate dog and, and consumed, and that is a potentially dangerous situation. And, um, and so I think uh, despite it being awkward, it's important to make sure that home burials are, are done in such a way that, um, that that's not going to happen. Did you have anything that you wanted to add to the burial stuff? No, um, a, 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 the only the only comment would be our our um, the company that supplies or does the cremations and and um, body collections for our clinic does supply some quite nice yes. small calico type biodegradable um, bags um, and they have a little biodegradable 
version of plastic inside that so you can place the animal within the um, plastic type bag which will degrade as well um, and then you pop the animal inside the calico bag to give to the client um, so if it does leak any bodily fluids they're not going to go all over the you know lap of the person as they're driving home um, and then they can just bury the bury the animal at home in that nice looking um, plain calico yeah, bag so the, I presume um, you have something those similar. bags have been a bit of a boon and particularly the liner as you say there's um it's a constant worrying situations where there's not some form of impervious uh, barrier between the the remains and the owner that them the body fluids might make it a, an unpleasant experience for them um and and I think some of the veterinary suppliers may even uh, I know that um, yeah they, they they're available yes. at both locations the wholesalers yeah um, so cremation um, uh, I think uh, the only thing that I would say here is that um, uh, it's important to talk to the crematorium before you make the arrangements we've had some uh, particularly I suppose uh, larger. Um, uh, species that might be a little bit unusual. Um, particularly, we had a uh, experience with a, uh, you know, we've had a discussion about um, miniature pigs before, um, and um, and there are some limits on uh, various species that um, that can be cremated. And so, I think just investigating that before you make the arrangement is a good thing to do. Um, but um, uh, we generally are able to refer our clients to the crematorium's website and they're able to make that selection of a suitable container. Um, our, our, we can also, you know, some of our clients choose to have the cremated remains um, uh, dispersed at a particular location or um, and our, the wonderful people at uh, the pet crematorium here in Newcastle have organised things like that for us before. So it is a matter of just looking forward and being a little bit prepared, I think, Brendan. Yes, and with the cremation, then we jump into the, well, I was going to say the fun bit, but I think it, it can be exciting, some of the options the clients have for remembering their pet, and um, you briefly touched on a couple of those, which are quite easy to do, and, and Laura, one of my nurses, is, is always jumps in first and manages to ask the client, do you want me to cut a little bit of fur um, from your pet? and um, give it to you in a little bag and they often appreciate that as part of that process there but the other the other keepsakes or mementos mark that you can can provide and i know that the company we we switched our um, companies probably about a year or so ago and um, we're very impressed with the the company that we now use as far as the types of different options they provide for the for the clients and and I'm not just talking about the obvious ones, which are urns and, and the 101 different variations of urns, which um, are great and that they're, they're, they're um, you know quite tasteful. They're not tacky at all, um, the ones that um, they supply. But um, there's the other keepsakes as well, Mark, and I don't know whether you, you um, are involved with those with your company you use up up your way, but it includes um, um, a stainless steel um um, a bit of jewellery. I'm just flicking through the website here. Um, Pet Prince Jewellery, which is a, a little disc like a dog tag mark that you can put a paw print um, 
on there and have the name of the pet on there that can be um, provided. But the ones that I particularly um, are impressed with are the, um, um, they have a variation of a few different um, ones called Crystal, Crystal Rainbow Keepsake, which where they put a small amount of ashes or fur inside a crystal um, and it's a, a piece of jewellery and um, that's providing, um, being popular um, as well as there's a variation, a, a few different types of domes they call them, the company that we use call them memorial domes and they're, they're basically a little um, a crystal um, dome, dome um, that has a spiral um um, amount of ashes that they sort of entwine um, with a with whatever colour you like of the dome. Um, so it's um, you know it's a bit of, it's a little bit like a snow dome for your deceased pet, Mark. Um, except um, when you shake yeah. it, the and, um, and the when I first heard about around. those things, I thought, oh yeah, um, those no. sorts of um, incorporating the ashes might be you know a bit grey and pale and uninspiring, but they're not, Brendan. They're, I can understand why people would gravitate towards them. They do have a particular um, uh, uh, beauty and um, I'm sure that, you know, to some people would find them um, not that uh, that mu- that nice to look at, but they're, they're, uh, they're not, um, they're, they're pretty good, I reckon. And um, they sort of uh, harken back, there are um, now companies in human um, memorial services who uh, they do a um, you know the incorporate the ashes into uh, diamonds um, so that they can be uh, created into um, jewels. One of the other ones that um, uh, has really struck me quite a lot lately is um, uh, the preparation of you know we regularly get asked about um, taxidermy um, and um, they. I generally have a, you know, we've done it a number of times, but I generally have the discussion with people because because we've had some people that have been unhappy with the outcome. That taxidermy is an art form that um, that is designed to to um, uh, not to memorialise an animal, but to develop a specimen. Um, and so, clients that we've had that have had uh, their pets taxidermied will often. Um, will often uh, be disappointed because it doesn't necessarily capture the personality of the pet they once knew. Um, but um, there's a, uh, um, a uh, business that's in America that I wouldn't be surprised ends up um, coming to Australia um, where um, specimens are more dramatically um Rather than just taxidermied, a museum technique, there's a whole bunch of um, processing things that can be done to them uh, that turn them into um, specimens. So uh, the one that catches my eye is the the, um, the the company that does this in America is Anatomica, and um, and they do uh, a bunch of different sort of probably more commercial and high end specimen. Pro, uh, specimen um, production but there's some uh, 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 bits of the animals some processed parts of the animals that are stuck into uh, plastic um, to resin and uh, end up being a um, it's odd but um, uh, 
certainly they the, they definitely have a memorial service and there's people that take advantage of that to uh, have their their animal permanently um, uh, stored away in some form that uh, that they can constantly remember them so there's no sort of limit to what people might uh, ask us to uh, have done and I think we should keep an open mind when we get to that point well finally Funnily enough, Mark, there is a there is a company in Melbourne, or a, or one person actually runs this. He's an artist, and and he does does that very similar to that website that you mentioned. Um, as as far as producing, um, they're almost see through, aren't they? And the skeleton is um, um, fluorescing, um, um, and I forget the name of the actual technique that's done. Um, and and yeah, we. Chances are very high, Mark, that we will be using that um, as the award for the speaker this year, Mark, um, will be one of these products. So you'll get to see one of these at the conference, our Exotics Conference this year. And our good friend Tristan Rich has this person as his client. Um, and that's how he, he um, managed to get in contact with him. So it's a very similar process. So it is, it is not just... Um, on that one particular site, and um, yeah, that's spectacular. I'll, I'll send you the link to um, to the local um, local person who, who does that process. So yeah, there's lots of different ways that people like to, and I think it's the, the bottom line is it's 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 I think it's essential, um, not just important to to at least um, let the clients know that there are these options um, for dealing with their deceased. Um, loved pet um, and it may be something as simple as taking that animal home and burying it and ensuring that we're not getting things leaking out on the way home <laughs> and um, to to the fancier sort of methods of embedding um, a small um, bit of fur or ashes in a, in a um, pretty stunning piece of jewellery um, to the traditional urns and, and boxes and that and um, you know even the traditional urns and that um, um, they're there, um, there's so many different options these days, aren't there, Mark? One of the ones that the company we use offer a, a sandstone um, receptacle um, that um, also um, has a um, has a candle as well, and and um, it has a has a um, engraving that you can end up um, sitting outside, almost like a feature in your in your garden um, for them. So there's lots of different options, and I think we're we're doing a disservice to the to the client if we're not offering the possibilities of of all these sorts of things that they can um, can do to remember their their much loved pet. And um, I think the important thing that I learnt many years ago, Mark, is not prejudging them as far as the fact it's a, a one particular species, even the, even their pet chicken, Mark. That um, and they may have several chickens at home, and they may decide, look, um, we. We love our little chicken, and we're we're willing to spend a, a fair amount of um, money to to memorialise that our pet chook, and have it stuffed and <laughs> mounted on the mounted on the uh, mantelpiece with them. Um, my um, my um, my grandmother got burnt really oh, bad, did. Mark. Did I tell you this? Just off. No, they don't mess around at the crematorium. So on that note. <laughs> note <laughs> And poor, poor joke. Um, I think we'll um, we'll say goodbye for this week, and we'll talk to you all next week. And please send us an email. We haven't had a few email for a, a short period of time, and we're feeling a bit um, 
I'm feeling a bit um, lonely. But we'll talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time. Thanks.